Uh, if you don't know, maybe your first time here, you're here visiting, my name is Ricky Ragone. I am not the regular te- lead teaching pastor. I am the music and arts and youth pastor here at the church, and it's my privilege to get up here to be able to preach from the Word of God. And uh, we're in the third week of our Christ in the Carol series, and uh, we're taking a look during this series at some common Christmas carols that most of us have sung our entire lives, um, that have been sung for hundreds of years, and we're, we're honing in on the theological truths that have been woven into them. Uh, and what we've seen over the past couple weeks, and what I hope we'll see this morning, is um, that these are richly theological songs, and they're worth singing year after year. They'd even be worth singing outside the Advent season, but it would just feel weird. <laughs> we don't like when things feel weird. So, but they're at least a, a great songs to sing as we meditate on the coming of our Savior. Uh, if you missed the past two weeks, Pastor Luke covered uh, the, the songs, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which sings of the tremendous hope that we have in Christ. Uh, Hark the herald angels sing. We went over last week, which sings of the glorious work of the resurrection of Christ and, and providing and making that peace between sinful man and a righteous and glorious holy God. And this morning we're going to be looking at the spectacular carol, Joy to the World, as this morning we are meditating on joy. But before, before I just dive fully into the song, I want to take a second to just let you know that I can't stress enough how important it is that we understand the words that we sing. That we fully know and and comprehend the words that we are singing to our God as we gather and join together. It's good to know and understand what we're saying to Him, about Him, and how it relates to us. Because fully understanding the words of the songs we sing help us grow in our relationship with him and help us to press the gospels into our hearts and our souls. And I'll just give a brief, humorous example of why this is so important. Um, Literally, this happened last week. Um, Quite timely, it was about the song Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And uh, I was watching one of those cookie bake-off shows don't judge me. <laughs> Tell me you don't like a good Christmas cookie. But uh, I was watching it, and they had to make this cookie that was based on a Christmas carol. They had to pick their favorite carol, make a cookie on it. And the one person chose Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I'm like, all right, that's a good one. It's not Baby It's Cold Outside or anything like that. So I don't think that would be a carol. Nah. But, but they, they, you know, they do the little interview on why they picked the song. And this is why she said it was her favorite song. She said, I feel like this song just communicates, quote, Christmas is for everyone, the whole world, end quote. That was the gist of what Hark the Herald Angels Sing was just all about. And if, if you were here last Sunday, you probably know that that's not the takeaway from the song. Hark the Herald Angels Sing is... It's, it's about the praise of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the incarnation of Christ. 
Christmas for everyone, I guess that's, it's a nice sentiment, but reconciliation between sinners and God is a glorious, life-changing truth. Christmas for everyone sounds lovely, but it doesn't give me a fuller appreciation of Christ's first coming and a deeper understanding of the gospel. If you want a song that says Christmas is for everyone, you can listen to John Lennon's Merry Xmas War is Over. Look at verse 2. That's Christmas for everyone. I'm not going to read it. It's not worth our time, but um, that's Christmas for everyone. And I'm not just trying to throw Cookie Girl under the rolling pin. Um, (laughs) But I just want us to ask the question, do I understand what I'm singing fully? Not just like this song makes me feel this inside, so that's what it means. That's, do we comprehend what we're saying, especially on songs that are singing of our Savior? It doesn't matter what the meaning of Santa Claus is coming to town is. You can think whatever you want about that. But when we're singing of Christ, it's so important. So that's why I like this series, that we're taking the time to hone in on the wonderful truths of Scripture that are found in these songs. And uh, songs... That year after year, we may, we may have just sung and paid no attention to. My hope is that each time we sing them together from here on out, we'll have just a greater grasp and a greater appreciation of what they're singing. So, I know, I sound like the music pastor. It is what it is. So, let's actually get into Joy to the World. We'll start with a little history behind the hymn. Uh, so, the author of this famous hymn is a guy named Isaac Watts. And uh, he's, a, he's a hymn writer. He's written many famous hymns. Um, when I show you the wondrous cross, I sing the mighty power of God. Like some really rich and good hymns. And uh, this hymn, Joy to the World, is actually, it's just one of many poems in a book with the very brief title, Psalms of David Imitated in the Language of the New Testament, which it actually even has a longer subtitle after that. But I'm like, we don't need to know that. Um, so it's actually in that book that this is, is a part of many poems and reflections that Watts did on the Psalms. Because uh, what he did in this book was he wrote these poems trying to basically take the psalm and rephrase it with Christ in mind. That was his goal. Because at that time, people, people were just singing the psalms straight out of the scripture Put to music, which was not bad, but he wanted people to see Christ and savor Christ as they're singing these songs. So that's why he wrote the words to Joy to the World. And it's in this section of the book. Um, it doesn't have the title, Joy to the World. The initial title for this is called Psalm 98, the second part, The Messiah's Coming in Kingdom. I think Joy to the World rolls off the tongue a little better. Um, and it's... <laughs> paints for more of a picture on, on what, what he's getting at. But the section of the book was based on the second part of Psalm 98, as we heard this morning in today's Advent Reflection. So uh, we will be in that, and we will also be in some additional New Testament scriptures. But if you want to have your Bible open to a place, Psalm 98 is the place we're going to hang out uh, the most this morning. Um, question you might have. As I did. Watts wrote the words. He, he actually didn't write the music to this song. So who, who put the music together? Be, because it's memorable. I mean, you hear Joy to the World, you know it's Joy to the World. 
But actually, the first hundred years that this hymn existed, it didn't have a melody tied to it. It was just written in a, a certain meter that people would know, and it would be sung to whatever tune fit that meter. I actually read somewhere that at some point it was sung sim- like to the same tune as uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I can't hear it. It's impossible for me to hear it. These two hymns are so distinct that I'm like, that one can't fit in the other, but apparently it worked. Um, but this hymn was actually put to music not until 1848 by a guy named Lowell Mason, a Massachusetts composer. So in 1719, the words are written. Over 100 years later, the melody that we sing is put to it. And here we are, 173 years later, still singing this song. I think it's amazing. I, honestly, I can't wait till we get to sing it together in a little while. Um, but with all that said, we can finally, without further ado, actually get into the words and the content of Joy to the World. So we're going to look at each stanza as its own point, and we're going to be revolving uh, around this theme of the king. Um, if you couldn't catch that from all the songs we sang this morning. But we're going to see... Whoops. We are going to see the king who has come, the king who reigns, the king who redeems, and the king who rules. So let's start with the king who has come. The stanza one says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king, and let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. I mentioned that Watts' main inspiration for this was Psalm 98. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that they look precisely just like one another. They're not like word for word with just occasional phrasing changed. They're more so, they're related by theme. They're related by the the picture that they paint for us when you read them or sing them. This hymn, the Joy to the World starts, I automatically start thinking of like that that medieval proclamation of like the king is coming, like the trumpets. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. And then everyone starts coming in and the procession of the people and the court gesture looking like a weirdo. That's the picture I get every time. Be glad you're not in my head. <laughs> but it's just triumphant. Make way for the king. And that's the same picture we get in Psalm 98. So we'll look at verses 4 to 6. This, this is really where Watts' inspiration started from. Verses 4 to 6. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, and make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. When the King enters, people take notice. He's someone of great significance. The entrance of the King is marked by song, by praising by complete and utter joy. Now, though in the song, Joy to the World, joy is only used once in this stanza. It's just this opening, opening word. But the psalmist makes mention of a joyful noise three times in this section of verses. Make a joyful noise. Break forth in joyous song. 
with, with trumpet and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. This is, a, this is the picture of a king who it doesn't just who isn't just on a throne, but he's adored. They're making a joyous noise. This is a king who has achieved much on the behalf of his people. We actually see that if we were to just take a step back from verses 4 to 6 and look at how the psalm opens in verses 1 to 3. This is the king that they're singing about. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand, his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. That's the picture of a a king worthy of worship. And though the original readers of, of Psalm 98 or the original hearers of Psalm 98, they would look back. They would be looking back at God's faithfulness and looking back at what, all that he had done. And what Watts wants us to do here is, is look forward in the scriptures and see all that Christ has done. Hundreds of years after the psalm was written. Watts would, he understood that, that Christ indwells believers. He transforms the heart and the very natures of, of whom he redeems. So he doesn't just call for the, those singing the song to make way for a king to a location. He says, let every heart prepare him room. The, the king has come. Make way in your heart. Room for a new identity. God himself has come to redeem lost sinners. He has come to truly and most fully known, make fully known his salvation. And the response? Joy. Joy. Not, not a momentary fleeting uh, happiness and glee, but a deeply felt and understood soul-satisfying joy. The, the same joy that John the Baptist felt before he was even born. In Luke one forty four. Uh, Elizabeth, she tells Mary, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Baby John the Baptist already knew who Mary was carrying in her womb. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, the King of kings who would finally defeat mankind's greatest enemy, sin. And he leapt for joy in his mother's womb. I think that's so cool. I mean, there's so, so many of us who have lived years on this earth without truly knowing who Christ was. There was years of life. He wasn't even fully developed. And he knew. And he leapt for joy in his mother's womb. Because he knew who Christ was. He understood the king even in that, that age. I don't know what that age is. Negatives? I don't know. Not quite zero. Joy that is rooted in Jesus Christ himself is unshakable. And it may not always manifest itself in in the big smile, but but internally it is ever present throughout all of life's circumstances. I mean, that's that's why Paul 
tells the church in Thessalonica, in the first letter of Thess- uh, to the Thessalonians, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Because no circumstance can overthrow the deep-seated joy of knowing Christ. The one who, is, who has made his salvation known, as the psalmist says. He has revealed his righteousness among the nations. This joy in the Savior is why the Apostle Peter writes in his first letter, as we, we heard during our, our Advent meditation, during the candle lighting. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That letter was written to a people who were going to suffer, but their joy would not be in their current circumstance, but rooted in the one who saved their souls. A joy inexpressible. Their joy is found in the king who has come. And and this joy is not reserved just for human beings, just for mankind. The psalmist and Watts both emphasize that all of creation will be rejoicing. Psalm 97, 7 and 8. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. The hills sing for joy together. Now we're not going to see like water like clapping their hands, but it's just this whole picture of, of all of creation praising God in whichever way creation can do that, in joy. The joy brought forth by the perfect king is experienced everywhere. The sea, the world, the rivers. That's why Watts writes, let's heaven and nature sing. We sing to the glory of the king who has come. And he hasn't just come, he is the king who reigns. Second stanza of the song, joy to the earth, the savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Watts starts this similarly as he does the the first stanza of the song. With this exclamation of joy. But just as the psalm interchanges earth and world and so forth, Watts does the same thing. We started with joy to the world, now here we are joy to the earth. And he expounds on who this king is. He's he's not just any king. He's the Savior. That Savior who we heard about, right? In verses 1 through 3. He has worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The joy that erupts is not just for any king making his entrance. This is a king who saves. In Luke 2, the angels, they come to the shepherds with this glorious proclamation. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy 
that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He's not just a Savior, he's the Savior. I like how how Watts uses the present tense as he's writing this song. The Savior reigns. It's not the Savior reigned. It's not the Savior will reign. The Savior reigns currently. The Lord has come in a very specific point in time, right? We know that Jesus came. He was born. He lived 33 years on the earth. He was arrested, crucified for the sins of the world, but was buried. And on the third day, he rose. Forty days later, he ascends into heaven, where we're told that we know, Hebrews 1.3, that he is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. He is on his heavenly throne, reigning over all the earth right now. Just as Mary was told he would be by the angel Gabriel, right? Luke 1.32 and 33, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel's message to Mary wasn't just like you're going to give birth. Who who are you going to give birth to? It's about Jesus, who he is, who he would be and what he would accomplish. See, this hymn, it's always sung during, during Advent. It's not necessarily a Christmas hymn. It kind of lives out there in our minds, right? Because of the time of year we've, we've sang this song, like forever. But we're singing about a presently reigning Savior. It's not a reigning baby Jesus. It's a risen Savior. Sorry, Ricky Bobby. Anyone who's seen Talladega Nights, you can't pray to baby Jesus. He's not a baby anymore. We're praying to a risen Savior. There are actually, there's many who have written about this hymn. And they don't think it sings of Christ's first coming at all. They think it's fully focused on the second coming of Christ. And that when Watts wrote it, all he was thinking about was the kingdom to come. This song can simultaneously draw our minds to Christ's first coming and how glorious that was, while also drawing our minds to Christ's present reigning, how glorious that is, and it can point us to Christ's coming again and how glorious that will be. It doesn't have to be one or the other. This song points us to the king who came and will come again and who is seated on his throne now. Advent focuses on the, the incarnation and the first coming of Jesus, but it always points us to the present reality of who he is and the future hope that we have that he will come again. The present and future joy that we have in him. We don't fully appreciate the magnificence of Christ's birth without understanding the full story, the full scope of the work of Jesus. He was born a humble baby to one day return to his rightful throne at the right hand of the Father as the King of Kings and our reigning Savior. That was why he was born. To redeem his people to himself and reign as their king. And I would be remiss if I didn't, if I didn't 
mentioned where else Christ is reigning. He's not just reigning somewhere spiritually. But he's reigning today in the heart of every believer through his Holy Spirit. When Christ opens our eyes to his beauty and his salvation and we respond in faith, he gives us the gift of his spirit. Let every heart prepare him room, right? Stanza one. He, as he reigns in our hearts, he's changing our will from sinful desires to godly desires. Helping us despise sin instead of embrace it. And it's the spirit within us that can move us to have a deep inner joy. Even when our present circumstances seem to be pushing us the opposite direction. He's ruling in our hearts and reigning. And Christ is reigning over all the earth. Again, this, this verse emphasizes that the, the, the response to this reigning Savior is global, creation-wide praise and joy. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. All of creation feels the effects of the reigning king. So all of creation has this deep joy. And why? We see that in the third stanza of the song. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow, blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Now this portion of the song kind of steps away from Psalm 98 and brings us back to Genesis chapter 3. We've heard from Genesis 3 in the first carol we looked at with Come Thou Long Expected Jesus as, as that sang of the curse as well. But if you missed it, just in case and you're not sure, I'll recap Genesis 3 a little bit. It tells us, it tells us about when mankind sinned against God back in the garden. As Adam and Eve, they're influenced by the serpent. And they eat of the fruit from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, despite specific instructions from God, like, don't eat it. You can eat anything. You can have anything you want. Don't eat from that tree. And they do. And as a result, sin has infested the earth in all sorts of ways, from mankind right down to creation. And after God lack of a better word, discovers, though he's all-knowing, what they did, right? He gives specific curses. To the serpent, God says that it will be confined to the ground. It's going to slither on its belly. It will be essentially the lowest low of the creatures. And to the woman, he says, she will experience great pain and childbearing. And there will be this, this power struggle between her and man. And to the man, God says he will curse the ground. And eating it will be hard work as man now has to toil for food. This is, this is the effects of just that one piece of disobedience. God says in Genesis three seventeen to 18, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. See, the effect of this curse is now this, this unharmonious relationship between man and nature, between man and woman. And as we see in the 
each narrative to follow in the scripture, we see this, how this infiltrates all of mankind, causing strife and problems. The curse of sin has affected every single aspect of the world. But in the midst of these curses, God tells the hope that mankind could look forward to. See, after God curses the serpent, he then says this, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So from the offspring of the woman, there will be this one who will crush the head of the serpent once and for all. That offspring will be bruised, but the curse of the serpent will be defeated once and for all. We know Jesus is that offspring. He has crushed the head of the serpent as he was bruised and crucified on the cross. But he rose from the grave, conquering the curse of sin, putting death in its grave. And the work of redemption that Christ accomplished has reversed the curse. And that's what Watts is, is singing about in this verse. Now, I am, I'm generally curious. Who actually had heard or sung verse 3 in the past? Anyone? Not a ton of hands, right? It's like the forgotten verse. It probably wasn't even like until within the last 10 years I knew this verse existed. It was always... Joy to the world, joy to the earth. He rules the world. That's all. And maybe the thought of a curse just isn't Christmassy enough. So we're like, mm, let's not think about the thorn and thistles and all that. And I know of the arrangements we've done here that have led year after year. Not in it. Not intentionally. But it seems like every modern adaptation of this song is only arranged for the three famous stanzas. And then this one gets just left by the wayside. But, but this verse, it's, it's the reason all of creation is singing for joy in Psalm 98. The salvation of God. The, the curse has been lifted. It's defeated. If he's not saving them from the curse, what is he saving all of creation from? Though we don't see the full effects of the curse lifted now, as we all deal with the struggle of sin, we have the full assurance that one day it will happen in the consummation of all things. When Christ does return to establish his perfect kingdom, where creation and humanity are completely free of sin's curse. Revelation 22, 1-5 says, Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. He makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's the future hope, the future joy we have. 
He's at work doing it. But one day it will be gone. The curse will be gone and we will live forever in perfect harmony with our God. His redeeming hand will renew it for his glory forevermore. He's the king who redeems. And he's the king who rules. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. This idea of ruling with truth and grace is a refreshing thing to hear. I mean, how many of us have seen someone who rules with any ounce of truth, let alone grace, in our time? But Jesus is the king who rules like, unlike any earthly ruler. Christ rules his kingdom with grace and truth because he himself is full of grace and truth. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. This combination of grace and truth is so important to who Jesus is. Truth demonstrates the the moral righteousness of his character. And grace shows the compassionate, tender-hearted aspect of his character. Forgiving, merciful. One without the other, we we miss just who Christ is. A, A king who is all truth and no grace is a tyrant. And a king who is all grace and no truth would be powerless. But you put them together and you have this beautiful picture of Christ himself. Holy and righteous yet merciful, forgiving, full of grace and truth. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the the wonders of his love. We return back to Psalm 98. Look at verses 2 and verses 9 and what they say. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. In verse 9, For he has come to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. If there's one thing that we've seen in our study of Isaiah is that the nations who think that they're something are nothing in comparison to God. Think of Assyria, this big powerhouse is humbled as 185,000 done in an instant at the hand of God. The nations will prove the glories of his righteousness. Though we, we live on this earth now in a time where, where nations still think they are supreme entities, one day the, the nations of earth will prove or, or truly see and reveal the glory of Christ, the King, and his true righteous rule. They're not going to make him any more glorious. He's of infinite glory. 
But his glory will be on display as one day at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians. One day every knee will bow of every nation, every person. Jesus is ruling and reigning now in heaven, but there will come a time, right? His perfect kingdom will not be a future hope, but a present reality. There will not be a nation left that doesn't bow their knee to Christ. And in the end, they will declare the glories of his perfect righteousness. But even until that day, until that time, believers across the world, throughout many nations here and now, are declaring the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love as they live out the gospel. With with each person who comes to know Christ as Savior, as Lord, as King, the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love are made known. Because with each person who believes the light of Christ shines more and more in a darkened world. He rules the world with truth and grace. Makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. With all of those stanzas in our mind, with the, with the words of the psalmist, with the truths of who Christ is, I ask this question. Where is your joy this morning? The author of Psalm 98 makes it clear. The reason mankind and creation can shout for joy is because of the salvation that has been made known by their king. And salvation can be made known today in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus descended from the glories of heaven to enter into our sinful world, to live amongst his sinful creation, and yet he himself had no sin. And he willingly went to the cross to die for sin in order to pay the debt that we owed to God. Romans 6.23 tells us, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death is what was owed in the curse. Jesus pays what was owed and in turn offers to those who believe in him the greatest gift imaginable, eternal life. Redemption. Freedom from the curse. What Jesus accomplished on the cross and his resurrection from the grave is why we have hope, which is what we saw the first week of Advent. It's why we have peace with God. That's what we looked at last week. And it's ultimately why we can have true joy. So if you've been searching for joy in possessions, in people, in circumstances in your life, you're always going to come up empty. Always. You're always going to be searching for something more. And those things, they, they can all be good things. But when they are, but they are not the ultimate thing. Jesus is that ultimate treasure. Put your faith and your trust in Christ today. Experience the joy of knowing the King who has come. 
experience the joy and the freedom of having the Savior reign in your heart and change your desires and your affections. Experience the joy and the blessings of being freed from the curse of sin. We all feel it. Feel the freedom that is in Christ. And experience the the joy of Christ ruling with truth and grace in your life and over all the earth. See the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. If you don't know Christ, trust in him today. And church, for those who are followers of Jesus... Uh, remember and be reminded of why you can have true joy. That once you were an enemy of the king, but Jesus has redeemed you. He's reconciled lost sinners to their God. He's adopted us into his family. We were on a one-way road to hell and the king redeemed us. That should give us great joy. And I want to add this to anyone. I fully understand that the, the Christmas season, it's not, it's not a particularly and always an easy time for everyone. I know, I know there are probably more than I would even think who, who, are, who are saddened during this time for one reason or another. Joy doesn't always mean jolly. Uh, and I just want to encourage those here this morning who have been, who have been feeling down this season to look to the king who's come. He loves you. He cares for you. And if there's anything that's been overshadowing your joy, just remember all that Christ has done for you and in you. You are a child of the ruling and reigning Savior King. And may the spirit that dwells within you move you to joyous praise and adoration this morning. So as a, as I close, we are going to sing Joy to the World together. Now, normally we would end after the sermon and some somber reflection. We are just going to go into joyous praise and adoration at our king. So I'm going to invite the band up. And... Uh, Typically, we, we're not going to do a typical rendition of the song. We, uh, I'll just give you that disclaimer. We hold nothing back when we sing Joy to the World here. So it will definitely not be our classic arrangement of the hymn. But we are going to declare together the truth of who Christ is. The beauty of the King and who, is, who has come who is reigning, who is redeeming, and who is ruling. So before we sing, let's, let's just bow our heads and pray together. Father, we thank you for the joy that we can have in Jesus Christ. The redemption that we can have from the dreaded curse of sin. We thank you for sending us our King. That you revealed to us the beauty of his majesty, his righteousness, his saving power. Lord, be at work in our hearts. Propel us to joy. That we would see that all as Christ has done. Lord, I just ask that this morning, if there's there's something stopping us from having joy, we're, we're hung up 
uh, on sin in our life. Father, I ask that we would release that. We'd confess it. We'd repent. We would see the beautiful righteousness of Christ given to us and celebrate, enjoy the salvation we have. We have nothing but reason to celebrate today. So let us lift our voices to you, Lord, in joyful praise and adoration. With joy to the world, the Lord has come. Father, we just thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.